Ron, can I ask you? Amen. All right, so page 25, chapter 8, section 6 is where we're going to pick up. And I'll read it out and then we'll pick up where I think we left off. I'm open to correction if I'm wrong here. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think we actually only got to um, that first, uh, the first passage here. Uh, or the first footnotes, I should say. So that means we finished 34 and we're up to footnote 35 here. So I'll read uh, that. That Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And who wants to take uh, Revelation 13, verse 8? Keith. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, this is right at the front of your Bible. That's right, yeah. Okay. So what does that mean, that Jesus is uh, slain from before the foundation of the world, and that the book of life is from before the foundation of the world? What does that mean? Because wasn't Jesus crucified in time? Isn't that the case? So if Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, we can mark that on a calendar. And history was clearly well up and running 2,000 years ago. So what does this mean? He was destined to? And is that plan subject to alteration or change? Not whatsoever, right? Could anyone derail it? No. No, absolutely not. So, yes, in terms of God's mind, God's plan for his creation, God's decree, however you want to talk about that, this is absolutely inalterable. Uh, And that's why when you get to Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost... In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, Jesus says that, well, let's turn to those. It's not in the footnotes here, but Acts, turn to Acts chapter 2. 
This is Peter's Pentecost sermon, and I'll have to look up the notes. I think it's maybe 27 or somewhere in there, 28. No, a little earlier, verse 22. So let's look, Acts 2, this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, notice this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. A couple things there, and this is where we get into some of these big ideas when we think of the Bible, when we think about theology. Is this the definite plan of God? That Jesus has given up to be crucified? Yes, it is. It is a definite plan. Okay? So that means, because it was God's decree, that means Pilate and Judas were just doing what God wanted them to do, so there's no personal guilt or culpability, right? Right? They're doing God's will. What kind of men did this? The hands of? Evil men, lawless men, okay? Pilate and Judas are guilty of doing a great evil exactly according to the plan of God, okay? What was in their heart was evil. What was in God's intention was good. Uh, But we are accountable for what's in our heart, not for how God has ordered history to work. And you see it again in Acts 4. Turn a couple pages over. This is Peter again. Oh, this is where I had verse 27 in my head from. Okay. Well, let's back up actually uh, to 25 where uh, he starts quoting David. Why did the Gentiles rage? This is Psalm 2. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, that's a direct quote from Psalm 2. For truly in this city were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God's just watching, and he saw when he looked down the corridors of time that this would happen, right? And he's trying to apply the brakes as much as he can, because this is going really bad. So God's trying to pump the brakes, but he foresaw that these men would do this, right? No. These men did exactly, they followed the script perfectly, to a T. And because they did it with evil and malice in their heart, they are under the wrath of God for doing it. Okay? We, your theology has to be big enough that God can decree for evil things to happen without God himself being evil. We have to have that. Jesus Christ was crucified from before the foundation of the world, which means before the fall happened, God had a plan for his son to be killed by evil men. Think about that. Do evil men exist in an unfallen world? They don't. Was the fall itself decreed by God? Yes, it was. It had to be. 
Because before the fall happened, God not only had a plan for evil men to do something, and evil men don't exist in an unfallen world, but he also had a plan to rescue the world. Well, here's the thing. An unfallen world doesn't need a rescue either. Okay? The fall was decreed by God. God wrote the fall into the story. And this is what it means that Jesus is the Savior from before uh, the foundation of the world. He must be. This is, this is the unalterable, perfect, infallible plan of God to do it this way. And I'll stop there. We've discussed some of this stuff before. Um, and I know it's a big concept, so maybe it's difficult. Um, discussion on this. Does this make sense? Is it starting to make sense? Does it seem like my head hurts if God decrees evil things to happen without he himself being evil? Yeah. It gives you a headache? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a, it's a big thing, right? And so we can do two things because of our limited brain capacity. We can do two things. And I think we talked about this several chapters back when we talked about God's decree. We can do two things for the sake of our own simplicity. We can say, okay, well, God can't do evil, right? And everyone in this room should say God can't do evil, right? We're all agreed. God cannot do evil. It's impossible for God to do evil. Therefore, God doesn't decree evil to happen in any sense, makes sense. If you think about it for 30 seconds or less, that makes total sense. If you think about it longer, okay, so God's not in charge. So there's lots of evil slipping through God's fingers. God's not all powerful. How do we have any assurance that it's going to turn out in the end? Because after all, evil is running independently from God. How can you trust any promise of future victory if evil is independent of God and he hasn't decreed it in the other sense? Okay? And some people go there. Or, and that's called open theism or semi-Pelagianism. It goes by different names. Where you so emphasize the freedom of man that you take God out of it. Uh, and that is not a, a biblical view. Or you can do what's called hyper-Calvinism, which is not Calvinism. Um, it's not orthodox in any sense. Where essentially we just break down into robots. And our will isn't part of what we're doing at all. Uh, and that is not an orthodox view. That's not Reformed theology. That's not Calvinism. That's not Calvin's view. Uh, it is a logical, well, I'd say an illogical extreme of, uh, of so prioritizing the sovereignty of God that we don't have room for human freedom. Uh, what I think makes sense of this is classical Reformed theology, Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, where the way this works is... Man is always doing what he wants to do. And think about that for a minute in your own experience. Everything you've ever done your entire life is something you wanted to do. No exceptions. Okay? And the dairy farmers are thinking, that's not true. I didn't want to wake up at 3.30 this morning. Yes, you did. Because when your alarm went, you were faced with the choice of leaving your cows unmilked or getting them milked. Okay? You didn't like your options, but between your options, you still picked the one that you most desired. That's how free will works. Okay? Uh, a, a big view of God's sovereignty, uh, Calvinism or Reformed theology or whatever you want to call it, does not deny human free will. It defines it, it understands it differently. It's saying essentially, um, 
free will is defined as we do what we want to do. Okay? Whereas a, a libertarian view of free will uh, would say essentially uh, that man's free because he can do anything. So a man can equally choose A or non-A in the exact same way. He can choose either one. Uh, the Calvinist view of free will says no man chooses what he wants to choose. Okay, you see the difference? And Luther always joked, we call this Calvinism, that's actually kind of an accident of history because Calvin did talk about this, but if you wanted someone shouting this view of God's sovereignty from the rooftops at about five times the volume of Calvin, it was Luther. This view should be called Lutheranism, really. It's an accident of history that we call it Calvinism. Um, But he said, if a donkey had free will, the way the Roman Catholics talk about free will, that donkey would starve to death. You could put out a whole bale of hay and a whole pile of oats and the donkey would starve to death if it had free will. Because there's nothing in that donkey that ever would want one or the other. You're left in constant indecision if that view of free will is true. The Calvinistic view of free will actually makes far more philosophical sense. We choose what we want. That's why God holds us accountable. (laughs) Because I'm doing what's in my heart. My actions reflect who I am as a person. Of course it makes sense that God would hold me accountable for my choices. The irony is, because the other side of this argument, Arminian theology would say, well, what they're trying to guard is human responsibility. But here's the problem. In their view of free will, if there's nothing inclining us one way or the other, if we can choose contrary to our nature and our desires... That means your choice is essentially spontaneous or arbitrary or random. So I like to turn that argument on its head. If that view of free will is correct, how could God hold anyone accountable for your choice? It's just random. It may or may not be a reflection of your heart. If Arminian theology is true, I don't know how God could hold you accountable. Because your choice is just spontaneous. It means nothing. In the Calvinistic view, I did what I wanted. Judas did what he wanted. Evil is in his heart. Of course God's going to hold him accountable because <laughs> he wanted to do evil. Um, so I actually think if we think this all the way through, I, I, I think, well, of course, I think the Calvinist view makes more sense both of man's free will and of uh, God's sovereignty, both Keith and then uh, Burn. So in their view, it would just be an accident that we find saving faith. Yeah, because of our parents or our setting or, yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and I agree. Even, yeah, even, even if we had no biblical revelation whatsoever, just straight on philosophy, the Arminian or the libertarian view of free will actually doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, there, has to be, there has to be something in us that decides to choose one thing over the other. Vern.
Okay? Okay. So, it's saying, if you're destined for the sword, the sword's in your future. Right? Um, but then you're wondering, how does that work with a call to endurance of the saints? Okay, well, here's the thing. Um, I think we can look at this two different ways. One, this is in the context of persecution. So, uh, may Christians face the physical sword? I'm sure we may. Yep, that could happen. And it has happened in history. Um, so I think at one level we could say, don't lose heart. You're going to a promotion. You're one of God's saints. So even if you're going to face the sword, yes, you'll face the sword. But what's the worst they can do? The worst they can do is kill you. And for a Christian, that actually isn't a problem. Um, but I think some of these things, too, when we talk about how this works, God's sovereignty and salvation and, and our responsibility and our free will and so forth, um, how can that be turned into an encouragement? And I would say um, that these encouragements and threats actually do what they're designed to do. Right? It, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. The warning passages about making shipwreck of your faith and so forth, um, people wonder, well, if there's warning passages about making shipwreck of your faith, it must be possible to lose your justification. But then you have to square that with Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And every possible thing is mentioned there. Natural events, me, Satan, God. Like every possibility is there and says it can't separate us from the love of God. And yet here's the stack of warning passages about not falling away. So what, what do we do with that? So here's the thing. Uh, are those warning passages, do they mean, do non-Christians take them to heart? No, they don't. They don't care about the warning passages. Because the whole Bible is just kind of an optional book. So, so those warning passages don't do anything for them. For someone who's truly regenerate, who cares, and who is sensitive in their spirit, such as you, when you read that warning passage, you're reminded, Vern Peters better start killing sin. Right? The warning did what it was designed to do in both cases. <laughs> it hardens the unbeliever, and it keeps the believer soft. So in that sense, it's kind of a... It, in one sense, it's a hypothetical, uh, but, but the warning passages are doing exactly what they're designed to do. Leave the unbeliever without an excuse and keep you, like a horse, kind of soft in your mouth so God can, can work with you and move you, right? Um, but I would say here in the immediate context, I think the immediate context has to do with persecution and suffering, um, and I'd say Christians don't need to fear the sword. So you get to be with the Lord a couple days early. That's not actually a problem. Or at least I hope it's not. And I don't know, maybe that's not answering what you're, what you're getting at there. Yeah. yeah, no, that's good. Anything else on this? Jesus, the, found, the Savior from before the foundation of the world? Well, <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, good correction, yes. We, we would get there right on time. You're right. You are correct. Are we good to keep moving on? Okay, then let's keep moving on. So he's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who wants to take Hebrews 13, 8? Caleb. Okay, what does that mean, Caleb? Yep. Okay, I'm going to throw, can I throw you a curveball? 
because we just got through Pentecost. Jesus is the same forever. The gift of tongues were there in the early church. And Pastor Matt suggested last week that they're not happening today. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Checkmate. Okay, okay. That's one answer. He said well, it's a, a, a different person of the Trinity. Let's leave that there for now. Uh, we don't do blood sacrifices anymore. We don't do blood sacrifices. The God of the Old Testament demanded them, and here we're not doing them, but it says God's the same today, forever. Checkmate, Christian. Andrew. Was he present? Yes. But not visible. Not, there was no attention being drawn to him, but he was there. I do believe he was there. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay. What do you mean, Don? Are we speaking of practice? Right. Yeah, and I think that's the answer right there, is that God is free to uh, alter what he demands of us, right? That's not a change in his character, because the blood sacrifices were never meant to be permanent. That's not an intrinsic part of who God is, is blood sacrifices and temples and priests and and prophets, uh, or tongues, uh, or miraculous healings, or writing scripture. These things can all stop without that affecting God's character in any way, shape, or form. God's just saying, I'm going to give you these types and shadows to point to this Messiah who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Right? I can give you these types and shadows. The substance was in God's mind the whole time. If God, if the coming of Jesus was because, oh no, these guys botched the old covenant, I better come up with plan B, that would be a change in God. But that can't happen, right? I think the fact that Jesus was slain from before the foundation of the world means there is no change. The externals that are teaching us that we're pointing to what God has always been planning on doing, that's inalterable. So tongues are meant to teach us something about world evangelization. They were never meant to be permanent. Andrew. The same way but in the shadows. So I don't think Abram or Moses or Noah would have responded positively to God without the Holy Spirit making them new. So I think they were regenerated the same way you and me are. But what has happened is God's shone the floodlight open now. We have a fuller picture of what was always happening, but just like the Old Testament saints were saved by the blood of Jesus. Well, Jesus hadn't shown up yet, right? But they were saved the same way we are, by the blood of Jesus. Uh, But we have, on this side of Christ, we have a much fuller picture of how that worked. And I'd say on this side of Pentecost, we have a much clearer picture of how the Holy Spirit was in operation.
Not necessarily because, um, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, but there's certain events that draw attention to the next step in redemptive history. So, for example, we, you know, we've looked at the, the five evangelical feast days. How many times does Jesus need to be born of a woman? Once. How many times does Jesus need to be crucified? How many times does Jesus need to be resurrected? How many times does Jesus need to ascend to heaven? Once. How many times do we need Pentecost? One time. We need it one time, just like all the other things. And so I think to say, well, no, the Holy Spirit, that must mean, that must mean there's ongoing prophecy in tongues and miraculous healings. Well, that's not the way it works for any of these other events. We're not crucifying Christ weekly. <laughs> We're not, he's not ascending to heaven weekly. These are one-time things in history to, to drastically draw attention to the new way of operating, the new program. So to speak. it's not a change in God, but it's a change in the way he's relating to his creation now. So I don't think we need an ongoing Pentecost for the truth of Pentecost, because the greater reality of Pentecost is clearly now the gospel's for all people. It's for all tongues and tribes and nations. That's the lesson you should learn. If the lesson we're learning is, oh, Christians can make weird sounds with their mouth, well, okay, um, but if we're learning, oh, so we need to go to China and Indonesia with the gospel? Now you're learning what Pentecost was about. That's, that's the substance. The, the sign is a miraculous sign, same as these other things, but they're just they're, they're singular events that, that move the program of redemption forward, if that makes sense. And maybe I'm not understanding you properly. Okay. Keith. I was working with that assumption last Sunday. Yes. Yeah, I do believe I do believe it is an undoing of the curse of Babel. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't changed my mind since then. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so Babel is a curse where God confuses and curses and divides with language. Pentecost is a miraculous reversal of that. Now these languages are being used to bring the nations back together under the headship of Christ. So what God did use as a curse, he now uses as a blessing. And that pattern's actually all through Bible, the Bible too. Think of, uh, we're going to have communion today. What's the first curse in Egypt? Water into blood. What's Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine. You see? Decreation, creation. <laughs> this water turning red was here a curse. Now Jesus has come. Now this water turning red is suddenly a blessing. Languages that are varied is a curse over here. Now it's a blessing. We can get to Burma with the gospel. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We can learn the Burmese language and translate the Bible and get it to those people. This, this, this decreation and creation theme, it's, once you see it, it's, it's absolutely everywhere in Scripture. And so, yes, I do believe Pentecost is a miraculous reversal of Babel. What's that? Then you better. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you going to trust, your wife or your pastor? I'll leave that there. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
we'll have to put you on five second delay. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm not sure that's eschatology. Well, I guess it could be related to that. Do I see us returning to one language? Can I be totally agnostic on that? I have. It's been tried, actually. There was in the 70s, there, uh, what was it called? Es- there we go. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Esperanto? Yes. There was an attempt to create a unified worldwide language that I don't think really ever got off the ground, did it? There's. Okay. <laughs> and can you understand it? Okay. See, and I find it interesting that I remember when we moved to Oregon, I had a couple uh, deaf kids in my class. And it was a big school. And we had a lady that was sign language um, for these kids. And someone had just mentioned in class one. So I guess that's at least one language. You know, at least sign language can be universal. No. Amazingly, it's not. <laughs> there's English sign language and there's... It's like, okay, we, we can't even get that right? <laughs> like... <laughs> Interesting. Okay, that's wonderful. Okay, well, that is a reversal of Babel, isn't it? Interesting. Okay, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. That's cool. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, and that's where my mind is going a little bit too. If people are saved from every tongue, tribe, and nation, it's probably still divided nations and tongues when Christ returns. But somehow that's not going to be a problem. If that is the case, maybe we are going to go to a universal language. I don't know. But if we don't, I don't suspect it'll be a problem. I don't know how to answer that. What's that? Yep. Yep. No. Maybe we, maybe, yeah, maybe that, maybe it'll be in heaven that we can all understand each other, can all speak each other. Yeah. Or we'll all speak Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're all going to speak King James English. King James English, right? If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. All the new, yeah. And it is. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess it depends on if we see new Bible translations, how we see that. As a good thing or as a bad thing? And it's, realistically, it's, I don't know, it's maybe both. I'm thankful for the ESV, which is one of the newer ones. I think it's an improvement over the NIV. So in that case, I'm thankful for it. 
I'm not thankful whatsoever for the updated NIV. It's terrible, frankly. Um, and even they've actually changed the NASB, the same thing too. The NASB used to be an excellent translation and they've modernized it as well. And some people have retained the 1995 NASB and I think it's now called the LSB, Legacy Standard Bible. I think John MacArthur um, is keeping it in print as the original NASB. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that because I don't think modern translations are necessarily bad or necessarily good. There's good ones and there's bad ones. One of the strengths actually, and I'm not, I mean, I tease about King James onlyism, but I don't think it's actually bad when English-speaking Christians all could recite verses the exact same way. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And that even still, as young as I am, that the King James version often comes out of my mouth just by default. Right? Like John 3.16 is in King James English in my head. And lots of verses are like that. Where I'll, I'll, even I'm reading my ESV and I'll say it in King James because it just... So that part isn't bad that we'd be unified around a translation. But as translations that were formerly trustworthy get gender, and it's usually around gender neutral stuff that they're updating them and revising them, then I'm not sad if better, more accurate translations come out in response to that. If you're going to destroy the NIV, well then I want something to replace it. I want an ESV to replace it. I don't know how to answer that. What are, what are our thoughts on that? Multitude of translations. Good? Bad? Bit of both? Neither? And that's helpful too, if you don't do Greek or Hebrew, to have several English translations and kind of help you get to the sense of it. That can be very helpful. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else to add to that? Tyson. Yeah, so Tyson makes an interesting point about maybe, maybe usage also helps to dictate how helpful some of these things are. I, and he, he mentioned the Message Bible, if you didn't hear him. I would never preach from the Message because it's not a translation. It's essentially a running commentary on the Bible. But could that be helpful for a brand new Christian who doesn't have any vocabulary or any concepts? 
could an extremely easy reading commentary, essentially, be helpful for him? It might. Right? So maybe it has a place. It certainly doesn't have a place in preaching where we want precision. But it may have certainly a very valid evangelistic or devotional purpose. Right? That could very well be. Yeah. The Living Bible? Everybody in Landmark had the Living Bible all through the 80s. Yeah, and your grandpa, I can picture your grandpa's actually, I know it well. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, uh, it was a paraphrase. The Living Bible was quite loose. But, yeah. Yeah. No, our family devotions were always the Living Bible and the Daily Bread. Yeah. Anything else on this? Yeah, and there's an argument either way there. Would we be a more intelligent society if we had to read the Queen's English? We might be. Maybe the King James Bible would help push us to think a little better. Um, But that's not where we are, so the counter-argument is why not put a Bible in the language that people are actually using? Uh, There's good arguments, pro and con. The only argument that I would really push back on is King James onlyism. Yeah. Right. So the problem is, is the Hebrew Bible really the Bible? Like, King James onlyism only works if you have a certain skin color and are born after a certain time. Like, does King James onlyism work in 17th century Germany? No, I, I agree. And, and the King James Bible isn't even the oldest English one. It was a modern translation that came through some controversy because before that, everyone was using the Tyndale Bible and the Geneva Bible. The King, James own, the King James Version was a modern translation at some point, and people felt perfectly at home with their Tyndale Bible, and they didn't want this modern <laughs> translation corrupting the church. So I, I would push against King James onlyism on a number of fronts, but that's not because I dislike the King James Bible. It's a beautiful translation. It's good. But to get hung up on it, I think, is missing the point. Am I looking at the wrong book? 
<laughs> the words of Christ being read, uh, I'm assuming now you're talking R-E-D, R-E-D, not because they all should be read, <laughs> R-E-A-D. Yeah. That's an interesting concept. Um, I'm actually not a fan of red letter stuff because I think it presents a canon inside of a canon as though somehow Jesus is more important than Jesus elsewhere. Jesus is more important than Jesus speaking through Paul or Jesus speaking through Moses. I'm not having any of that. No, thank you. Um, it's all the words of Jesus. So if you want the words of Jesus in red, sure, go Genesis to Revelation and make it all red. I don't, I'm not beholden to black. But I wouldn't want to see, and this is, I think, subtly what happens. And I'd be interested in feedback here. You make the words of Jesus red, and now everybody knows, okay, that's the important stuff. Right? That's, and yes, the words of Jesus are important. But when Jesus is speaking through his apostles and his prophets, that's equally important. So we can't carve the Bible up. I, if, if the red letters help you follow a dialogue better, okay, well, that's fine. Now we know it's Jesus talking. Now we know it's Peter talking. Now we know it's the Pharisee. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I'm concerned that it creates a hierarchy in Scripture of what's really like full-octane Scripture, low-octane Scripture, and then kind of like the no-tax farm fuel version of Scripture <laughs> in the Old Testament. And I wouldn't want that. Okay? But I'm curious on that. Does the red letter set up a, a potential category that we have tiers of Scripture? Could it do that? Lori? Yeah, and it does that kind of thing. And, and you, you could answer, no, he did speak about it. He spoke about it in Leviticus 23. Jesus spoke about it in Romans 1. He, right. And then you could still go to Matthew 19. But, but I agree. It sets up a canon inside of a canon. And I am deeply concerned about any time people do that. They'll do it with red letters. That's the important stuff. They'll do it with the New Testament generally. Right? The Old Testament is the word of God emeritus. It's the senile old professor who gets put in a corner office and thank you for your time here. It was good while it lasted, but it's, you're out of touch right now. We do that with the Old Testament where the New Testament is really the word of God. Uh, we do it with the words of Jesus. We do it... it that's, a, that's not a game we want to play. It's all the word of God. Every word is inspired. Every word is inerrant. Every word is the word of Jesus because God is Trinitarian. <laughs> so if God gave it to Moses... Jesus gave it to Moses. The Ten Commandments are words from Jesus. I'd, I'd, I'd caution anyone to set up... It's a fast track to bad theology, <laughs> to, to separate Jesus from Paul. And it's an old trick that the liberals played on a lot of unsuspecting evangelicals. And it's, it's a bad business. I've actually got a book from the 1950s by Gerhardus Voss. Um who talked about Jesus and Paul, because the battle in the 1950s liberalism was Jesus versus Paul. And remarkably, some Christians still think that way. In fact, recently, and I'll name names because this was on a CBC interview, uh, Kyle Penner. Has anyone heard the name Pastor Kyle Penner? Grace Mennonite Church in Steinbeck? Okay, so he was interviewed about, uh, by CBC on all this uh, 
pride stuff now for June. And he said, we talked about the Radical Reformation here a couple weeks ago. The Radical Anabaptist Reformation before Menno Simons showed up. Uh, And Kyle Penner correctly said, I am from the Radical Anabaptist tradition. I don't have to prioritize scripture above the ethics of Jesus. Huge red flag right there, but he's correct. The radical Anabaptists did prioritize Jesus over scripture. I don't know how you can do that because where do you know anything about Jesus? Was from. <laughs> I don't know how you can make that move. Um, but he is, I mean, that Grace Mennonite Church is fully affirming church. He, and he made that play on the basis of his Anabaptist hermeneutic, which historically is fair. Um, but he also did it by prioritizing Jesus over Paul. Right? Jesus never said a word about homosexuality. And if, if we want to do the red letters as the real canon, you could say, yeah, Jesus, Jesus does talk about marriage in Matthew 19, but he doesn't use the word homosexuality. That's true. But he affirms everything Moses said about marriage, and Paul's going to repeat it, and it's all one unified story. Um, but that's, once we start chopping it up, Andy Stanley has gotten famous for doing this recently. Andy Stanley is... And he's got a big microphone, much bigger than Kyle Penner has. Uh, it's not a good move. It ends in, it ends in bad stuff. <laughs> Augustine said that if you believe some parts of Scripture and not others, it's not Christ you believe, it's yourself. Right? And that's, that's true. That's what ends up happening. Because the parts of Scripture that are inspired are the parts I agree with. <laughs> and there's some kind of linguistic or contextual trick that gets me out of the parts I don't like. And that's, that's not how we want to do it. Anything else before we bring it in for landing here? Okay, so is God the same forever? Can God change the way he relates to his creation without himself changing? Can he send his son in human form at, in time? Can he send his Holy Spirit in time? Yeah. Is that a change in God? No, it's not a change in God. It's a change in his relationship to how he relates to us. And is every word in Scripture the word of Jesus? Yes, it is. Please remember that. Red and black are all the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that uh, your Son is the Savior from before the foundation of the world. Lord, I thank you that even though we disobeyed your commands, we disobeyed your laws, we... We crashed up against your law. Lord, still you had pity on us and you had mercy and you had the kindness to send us your son. Um, Lord, and this was inalterably decreed. Before we even did it, you sent out on a rescue mission because you loved your creation. Lord, and I pray that we would be struck anew by what that says, not about how lovely we are, but about how loving you are. You have pity and you have compassion and you have grace on on a humanity that has railed against you. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would see that every word of Scripture is there by your design. Every word of Scripture is there to teach us, to instruct us, to grow us in holiness. Lord, I pray that we would never prioritize one Scripture over another according to our wishes or our desires or what the culture is telling us to do, but that we would have full confidence that every word is there exactly as you intended it to be. Lord, and I want to thank you that even though you have gone through Uh, a series of different covenants and of uh, ways of relating to your creation and showing us things that were previously left in the shadows. 
Lord, I pray that we would see that you are the same God, the same triune God uh, working in all these things, that there is no change in you. Lord, I pray that that would fill us with a sense of thankfulness, a sense of awe, a sense of reverence. And I pray that as we move to worship this morning, uh, that we would reflect on this, uh, that it would grip us in our hearts, and that it would lead us to greater holiness, greater devotion, uh, and greater compassion and grace to one another as well. Thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.